The views expressed on the Own It podcast are that of Gunnar Esiason and his guests, and not necessarily those of the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Nothing in the Own It podcast should be considered medical advice. Such advice can only be given by a physician who is experienced with cystic fibrosis. The Boomer Esiason Foundation, Gunnar Esiason, and his guests cannot be held responsible for any damage which may result from using the information on this podcast without the permission of your medical doctor. You're listening to the Own It podcast, presented by the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Now, here's Gunnar Esiason. The Cystic Fibrosis community is invited to participate in a series of videos and podcasts on individuals that own it. This is the first of the Own It podcast series. A talk with Jerry Cahill is made possible through an unrestricted educational grant from Genentech to the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Today, you will meet Jerry Cahill, 58 years old from Brooklyn, New York, and diagnosed at the age of 10 with cystic fibrosis. Due to the progression of his disease, Jerry had a double lung transplant on April 18, 2012. Jerry's hobbies include pole vaulting, running, biking, weightlifting, coaching, and enjoying the great outdoors. Post-transplant, Jerry has become passionate about giving back to the CF community while volunteering at the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Jerry is truly relentless in living life and definitely owns it. All right. I'm Gunnar Esiason. Uh, Welcome to the first ever Own It podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be joined by Jerry Cahill, who's 58 with cystic fibrosis and a recent double lung transplant recipient. Uh, This is the first ever podcast in the Own It podcast series. Uh, And since people with cystic fibrosis cannot be together in the same room physically, we are using the Google Hangout to promote this podcast. So uh, thank you, Jerry, for for, uh, being with us. And uh, let's jump right into it here. Uh, So you're an old man to be a CF patient. Uh, What's that like? An old man? Oh, my God. That's, uh, That's starting off with a bang. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I'm 58, and uh, being an old man, as you call it, with cystic fibrosis is, uh, I guess it's like anybody else uh, getting old. Uh, your dad's probably up there in his 50s, so uh, I go through the usual aches and pains of, um, you know, dealing with knee issues and a uh, little arthritis from a lot of running. Uh to be honest, I'm just dealing with, uh, besides the normal CF things post-transplant, I'm just dealing with uh, the normal things of uh, getting older with CF and just getting older in life. I don't have really much gray hair. I have blonde hair. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. So going along with the, uh, the old life, uh, the older in life topic here, uh, what do I have to look forward to in, say, 30 years? Uh, you know, like you mentioned, your aches, pains. You don't have any gray hair, which is good for you. Um, but you know, is that coming or is that coming for you? I think so. I have some gray hair. It's on the sides a little bit, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess what you have to look forward to is number one with cystic fibrosis. I mean, the advancements have been uh, phenomenal with the, the treatments and, uh, the drug therapies and hopefully in 30 years, uh, people will not be needing transplants, but even with transplants, I think, uh, the technology will be so much better because the biggest problem post-transplant is you're dealing with um, the anti-rejection drugs and the side effects of them. But uh, what you have to look forward to is you'll probably have a family and have uh, children and uh, grandchildren at some point. So uh, I think you have a lot of good things to look forward to. How many children do you want to have, Gunnar? 
I have not decided that yet. I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still young. Oh, okay. <laughs> so despite all that, uh, you look like you were in pretty good shape. Uh, what's your secret? Well, I'm pretty relentless about uh, training and keeping in shape. Uh, you know, I was fortunate growing up that uh, when I was first diagnosed, people, you know, doctors told my parents, you're lucky if your son makes it till his 16th birthday. Uh, but uh, my dad got me pretty involved with my brothers and playing sports, which was unheard of back in those days. And I think that's what um, I have to say has really kept me healthy uh, and strong pretty much throughout my whole life. I mean, I'm not uh, the greatest of athletes, but I get out there and I do things. And uh, still at 58, uh, I don't do as much running because uh, of my knees. I've had six arthroscopic surgeries, so a little bit arthritis down there, bone on bone. So I do a lot of biking, but I guess the secret is just being very focused and uh, exercising a lot to keep my lungs clear. Uh, but, you know, anybody that exercises, it's, it's good for them, uh, for their body, mind, and spirit. That's definitely a good message to share. Um, okay, so let's jump back a couple years, say 40 or so. Uh, living with CF must have been a little different when gas was only 50 cents to the gallon. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, when I grew up and was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, it was really uh, – Back then, it was just, you know, I did what I had to do, but compared to today, um, you know, my nebulizer was a little devilbus uh, handheld bulb where you push the bulb and you'd get a little flicker of mist, and I used to inhale uh, what's called mucamist. Um, the enzymes that I would take for, uh, you know, my digestive system were just powdered things that I would put in uh, juice. Uh, tasted awful, and you know there was really no IV antibiotics per se unless you went into the hospital. So I took a lot of pills, but I was pretty fortunate. I think because of a lot of the exercise that I never was really hospitalized once they found out that I had CF until I graduated college when I was uh, I guess twenty. I was twenty-two at the time, though I was working, but that's the first time I was hospitalized for IV therapy. Uh, with cystic fibrosis, but it was it was weird. It was living in the dark ages. I mean, people with CF, we shared rooms back then in the hospital. Uh, they did postural drainage uh, on me and my roommate. You know, at the same time, like nobody had to leave the room, so there was no big issue of cross infection. Well, they didn't know about it back in those days, so uh, it was it was a lot different. Well, it sounds like a completely different world. Um, if I were to type in type cystic fibrosis into Google today, I'd get a million different responses in less than a second. Uh, what was your or even your parents' understanding of CF prior to the 80s? Well, really, prior to the 80s, there wasn't really Google and there wasn't uh, the Internet that people would go up and look at things. But So really, it was really what they heard from the doctors and they would read in a book and, you know, some of those medical books. Uh, and it, it was not promising. It was basically the life expectancy back then was, you know, 16, 18 years of age. So uh, there was not a lot to look forward to. Uh, and back then, the doctors would just say, keep your son or daughter comfortable at home. And, you know, and, uh, it's quite different today. Interesting. All right, so I want to change gears a little here and uh, go back to your, your athletic career. 
I once heard a story that you played a little football when you were younger. Uh, is that true? Uh, yeah, I tried football. We wouldn't say I played. I said I tried. I, um, you know, as I said, growing up, my dad, uh, when they found out that I had cystic fibrosis, wanted me to spend a lot of time with my brothers. My brothers were older than me. Uh, so I was put on the same team as they were. They were obviously much better athletes than me, uh, and we started off with football. So my brother played halfback with this league, Newt Rockney. Uh, my dad knew the coach quite well, so instead of me being on like a little, uh, I have a lot of blocks with some certain sports and uh, what, the terminology, but regarding uh, football, I guess I should have been on like the little peewees, uh, but I was put on the minors uh, or the majors with my brothers. Uh, so one brother I played on the team with, uh, he used to score a lot of touchdowns at this, in this league, Newt Rockney. So he was a halfback, so my father decided that I should be a halfback. And um, I really kind of hated the game because uh, I was so small. And, you know, everybody else was a lot bigger, and I didn't really get to play. So in practices, though, there must have been this hidden rule or unspoken rule, like really don't hit Jerry or just push him. So, But I didn't even like being pushed, so I had the cleanest uniform, and uh, I would sit at the end of the bench uh, – you know, so if I didn't have to play, I was happy. But if the if we were winning by a big margin, you know, my father was always at the gaze, and he stood on this hill with our dog. We had this German Shepherd, and he would give this nod to the coach, and he's way across the field. And all I had we did most of the game was watch my father and not the coach or anything that was going on in the game. I could really at that point care far less. And my father, I would see the nod, which meant, okay, Jerry's going into play now. And I'd be as far away from the coach as possible, hoping that he would ignore me, but it was inevitable that I would go in. So the first time I went in and played, uh, like I knew all the plays really well, and the first play was obviously to me. My brother came out. I went in to replace my brother, and I had to run through one of the holes, and I got crushed. <laughs> that was the first time that I ever really got hit. And I got up, and I was like, wow, this is not fun. This is really, really not fun. And then again, the second play, the ball was then coming to me, but I had to run around the outside. Mm -hmm. So I got the ball, and I'm running around the outside. I saw these guys running at me, and to me at that point, they were huge. Um, I was running kind of further and further away from them, almost in the opposite direction, you know, toward the out-of-bounds line. So... Um, Again, I think we lost 20-something yards on the play uh, just because I was running away from these people. <laughs> My father thought this was really funny, and I told him after the game was over, I'm never playing this sport again. So he said, oh, don't worry. We'll just finish out the season, and then we went on to other sports, which were just as bad. So, uh, But I found my calling in uh, track and field eventually. So I guess it's fair to say football was not your, was not your cup of tea, I guess. No, it was not my cup of tea at all. Yet you decided to, uh, to volunteer for a charity that has quite a bit of a relationship with the sport, huh? Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. Uh, I mean, I knew your dad, Boomer, and I knew about him and the story, and uh, obviously seeing the Sports Illustrated story with you on the cover. Um, and then it came to the, you know, but my life was not about CF, so I knew about it and uh, would go to clinic and do what I had to do, but I always thought it was them and then there was me. Uh, like, so when I would go to clinic, mm -hmm. go to clinic back then, and you'd see all the other people with CF. 
But I would always say, you know, think to them, well, that's them, and then there's me. Because some of them, unfortunately, people that I grew up with were quite sick. Um, you know, with all the advances, it's gotten better. But um, I never related to the world of CF. And, um, you know, but eventually I started getting sicker and sicker. Uh, and as that happened, I had to go out on a, I was getting to the point where I had to go out on disability because my lung function was dropping and I was on a transplant list. And I ran into somebody that said, oh, like, you know, you would be great to, we'd love you to meet Boomer or Siasin and uh, whatnot. So uh, I met him at one of his Sunday shows uh, with a gentleman, uh, Lee Becker, and, and Boomer was kind of amazed, I guess, because I was older with cystic fibrosis. And he said, well, eventually, you know, if you ever want to come work and help us out, that would be great. So I said, okay, thank you. And I remember then when I finally had to stop working, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I can't sit home and stare at the walls. So I called up, and then I met with, uh, with the foundation, and I started doing some volunteer work there uh, <laughs> on Skype. and whatnot, but to be honest with you, like, what's it like working with Boomer? And I said, oh, it's great, and I said, you know, he's quite busy and uh, with all the things that he does, but he does great work, you know, for the CF community, and I remember some friends that were more into, you know, football, they said, well, is there anybody else there that plays football? And uh, I was like, I don't really think so, but there's this real big guy there, and so he's kind of quiet, you know, and he doesn't say much. And they said, well, what's his name? And I said, I don't know, his name is Dave Dave Remington or Remington or something. And one of my friends said, Dave Remington, the football player from Nebraska? I said, I don't know. I don't know if he's from Nebraska. I don't know where he's from. <laughs> this is like after I was only there a month. And, you know, Dave, uh, the president, you know, he had such a busy schedule. He was in and out not that often or at different times that I was there. And uh, I remember one day then I finally found out that, yeah, this was Dave Remington. He played with, uh, uh, with Boomer as the center, and he was like, you know, there's a Remington Trophy Award and whatnot. I remember I put my foot in my mouth. I go into Dave. I said, hey, Dave, I didn't know you played football. <laughs> so it was kind of my indoctrination into the real world of uh, football. I learned quickly uh, – you know, how, how good Dave was and uh, all of his accomplishments. So uh, so it was a kind of an interesting experience. Cool. Very cool. Now, so you uh, you mentioned a little bit of your volunteer work with the uh, Boomer Sison Foundation. Um, can you talk more about the You Cannot Fail program, which you've really been the cornerstone of, um, and it's incredibly impressive uh, start over the past couple of years? Yeah, so at the foundation, you know, I, I work on a lot of scholarships and transplant grants, and Boomer's been great about giving back to the CF community. So besides doing a lot of great fundraising for Research for a Cure, uh, we do a lot about giving back to the CF community. Because although we await a cure, you know, there's people out there with CF that uh, have a lot of hardships financially, and they're getting older. I think the life expectancy now is around 40. So we give out a lot of scholarships and transplant grants, probably the, more than any other foundation. Uh, and with that, I've started to create other programs, uh, you know, podcasts and wind sprints and Club CF, all educational tools that, you know, Boomer has been in agreement that are important to do. 
Uh, and then one of those programs was You Cannot Fail, that you are the hero of your own story. And basically, uh, the meaning behind that is that, you know, everybody in life faces obstacles. Um, but I believe, and, you know, it was kind of a mantra from my parents that, that, you know, you cannot fail and you're the hero of your own story, whatever that story may be. You know, maybe you cannot run a marathon or, you know, you can't play football, but you can, you know, you can walk around the block and go out and play touch football uh, and whatnot for people with cystic fibrosis. Or you may come from, you know, some family problems and whatnot, but you overcome obstacles. So you cannot fail is about overcoming obstacles and as you quite know, there's a lot of obstacles that you have to overcome with cystic fibrosis. So uh, how was that tied into your achievements as being a pole vaulter? Uh, you cannot fail? Yes, uh-huh. Well, I guess uh, how it ties into, uh, I think it ties in general to um, probably sports. Uh-huh. Because people in general, you know, you try out for a team or you know, you're always trying to improve. Uh, you know, pole vaulting is a team sport, but it's always about uh, it's you against the crossbar and making improvements. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, a lot of the athletes that I coach now, they love it. Uh, they love you cannot fail and that you're the hero of your own story. So we started out with it using the logo of a pole vaulter taking off the ground, uh, taking off the ground up into the air. Uh, and really relying on himself and the pole to take him up and over the crossbar. So You Cannot Fail has become kind of a, an athletic slogan that we've been using. Uh, so the bottom line is really You Cannot Fail relates to so many different areas and so many different people, whether you have cystic fibrosis, you're an athlete, you know, you're a doctor, or you're just somebody overcoming any obstacle in life. Now, I have to tell you, I'm the type of guy where if I'm more than six inches off the ground, I'm, I'm unhappy. So how did you wake up one day and decide to fling yourself through the air? Well, I was on the track team in high school, and, uh, you know, I think it was my end of my sophomore year. I kept watching these guys pole vault, and I thought, wow, it looks pretty cool. Uh, it looked really challenging, and I liked the challenge. And, uh, but we had this one meet uh, every year. Uh, that they had down in Baltimore, and it was the kind of meet where you can go and try whatever you want to try at different events, and I tried the pole vault, and I remember some of the other pole vaulters were trying to teach me. They taught me some of the basics, and they put the bar up at like six feet, and it was like, there's just no way, you know, I was very intimidated with the bar. Uh -huh. So I actually put the bar like at two feet, and just got this the hang and the swing of it, uh, literally swinging up and over the crossbar and at the end of that day I ended up jumping five feet uh, which is is nothing but I was a sophomore and I just got this passion for it and I got obsessed with it that I kept working on it uh, and I've improved and the great thing about pole vaulting is that uh, it involves a lot of running weightlifting and uh, gymnastic stuff uh, besides actual doing the event of pole vaulting. So I ended up getting in really great shape, which unbeknownst to me at the time, as I said, I didn't really focus or relate to CF. I was really doing my body a great justice because I was keeping my lungs clear and, and staying healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, but with getting off the ground, I think once you start, 
and as you go up and up and up, uh, you know, being 16 feet in the air becomes nothing. Uh, so you get used to going up higher and higher. Interesting. And now, so you did this all the way through college too, right? I did it in college, and I did it after college, and I actually jumped uh, in masters, which is when you hit like 30, there's sub-masters, then when you hit 40, you're officially a masters. So I was jumping in the nationals, uh, masters, uh, I think I was 45 at the time, and I took fifth in the nationals. Oh, wow. So, uh, and I actually jumped, how crazy is this, I jumped, I didn't jump high, I jumped like nine feet uh, after I was tran after my transplant, like six months later. So oh, very impressive. Very impressive. It's kind of fun. The kids that I coach, they kind of get me going. As you know, you're a coach. Mm -hmm. The kids are a lot of fun that you coach, and uh, they get you inspired. Yes, yeah, so they definitely, you know, it works both ways there. You feed off each other, I think. Exactly. Um, so I'm about a year and a half out of college now. Uh, and I tell you, I've had a few challenges with uh, transitioning to the working world. Um, what was your move like from college to real life? Uh, I say real life with quotes. <laughs> yeah, it was it was harsh reality. Uh, you know, it's funny. I really I had a good time in college, um, but um, it was it was a wake up call. Going to college at first, I thought, oh wow, this is going to be fun. It's party time and. For the first couple of months at college, I just didn't do a lot of schoolwork, you know, because you're very independent then, and uh, you have a syllabus, and you just have to make sure you're doing certain things. But after, I think it was about, I guess a month and a half probably, I got this reality that, like, wow, I've got tests coming up. I've got to really start to study. It's not like, a, you know, you study a two nights before a test. I mean, you've got a whole, you know, semester of work you have to do. Um, so then I adjusted to college life, and uh, I was in a hurry to get out of college because I thought, oh, I'll get out of college, you won't have any more homework and things of that nature, and every night I can go out and, you know, have fun and just get up and go to work. Uh, but the difference uh, was when I got out of college that, you know, working was exhausting me, that it wasn't about, you know, getting home from work after working you know, eight, nine hours a day and then going out. Uh, and actually, that's when the reality of uh, the real world, of the working world hit me and the real world of CF hit me because uh, after working my first job out of college, I was working full-time. I worked in the apparel industry. I was a sales trainee. And as a trainee, you worked eight, nine hours a day. Uh, and I didn't stop working out for the most part, except on the weekend I would go out and do some, I'd be like a Saturday, you know, workout guy. Uh, I ended up getting sick. That's when I got sick for the first time with CF where I had to go in the hospital. Because I got to the point I was so sick, the medications, uh, the pills were not working, the antibiotic pills, and I went into the hospital to do IV therapy, and that was probably the first real dose of CF reality, obviously coupled with... work in the working world, so there was a lot of agendas kind of uh, to try to stay healthy and stay out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, I have to tell you, it's a little easier to explain to a professor that, that coughing up blood may lead to missing a class or two, say, um, than it is explaining to an employer that 
something like that could lead to missing several days or even a week of work. How did you handle something like that? Um, well, I guess I was a little different back then because CF, uh, as much as it is today a small disease, you know, compared to others, uh, back then it was even smaller, the awareness. Um, and I didn't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. For you, you know, with the foundation and, you know, being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, but I was fortunate growing up that I was not that sick and I was able to compete in high school and college and I never was in the hospital. But when I got out and went into the hospital for the first time, uh, I guess even though I did see the reality hitting me and the seriousness of it, I was so focused on my job. I told the, I, first of all, I told the doctor, I said, after a few days of being in the hospital, I got very depressed because there were so many sick people there with CF that were a lot sicker than me. And we were around each other because they didn't isolate us and, you know, I shared a room. Uh, so I used to get, I told the doctor, listen, I've had enough of this. I'm going to, I want to go home now. Uh -huh. And this was after like three days. He says, well, what do you mean go home? You, you can't go home. You have to stay here. I said, no, I can't stay here much longer. I said, I'm going to lose my mind here. But so I ended up staying, but I talked the doctor into giving me passes uh, so I would get a pass because you know as you go in the hospital there's a certain schedule of when you get your medications and so on and so forth that there's always like two there's at least three or four hours in between so I was in sales so I got a pass and I would go to work mm -hmm. and back to the hospital they would not do that today but back then they did and I would my suits all of my clothes my closet at the at the I was just going to say the hotel, but I meant the hospital room were filled with all my clothes and I would go to work. Um, you know, it was difficult, but uh, I, it was just, for me, it was survival and I had to keep my job and, and do that. Uh, today is different, um, but I did have a bleed out once in Arizona and that was kind of devastating. I ended up having to stay in Arizona for three weeks. I was working and I kept spitting up a little blood. I told the doctor. And then he said, well, you got to come in. I said, well, I can't come in. I'm in Arizona for business. He said, well, you need to come home as quickly as possible. And I said, well, I have some meetings tomorrow, and then I'll come home. And that night I was out on a business dinner. I ended up not feeling well, and my clients were like, what's the matter? You don't look well. And I said, oh, I have sinus issues. And that night, and uh, no, I went to bed. I used to get this rumbling. And this rumbling uh, that I got didn't stop this time. I got up during the night, and uh, this this blood just kept coming and coming. So I was by myself there. I was freaked out. Um, but I called my doctor in New York first. Then I went called the front desk. I said, you better call an ambulance. I had never been in an ambulance before. There was blood all over. It was like red room, red room. <laughs> blood. And... And uh, luckily, my doctor called back and um, told the paramedics and stuff to make sure that I, whatever the blood was coming from, to kind of keep me on that side, because otherwise I would have kind of flooded the other lung with the blood, you know. Um, but I ended up getting stuck out there in the hospital for three weeks. Uh, so, you know, work knew that, but I was able to do a lot of work on the computer and phone calls and stuff, but... 
you know, it's 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 a harsh reality, and I think people with CF, um, you know, they can't put blinders on, but they do need to to look at like what they can and can't do. I mean, it's always about you know reinventing yourself. I mean, there's certain things like I can't do that I used to do, so it's reinvention. When I went out on disability, I could have just sat there and stared at the walls, but you know, you reinvent yourself, and you. I started volunteering at the foundation, and it's been great for me. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, even with, like, exercise, I can't run as much as I used to because I, uh, you know, my knees are bad, so I'm doing a lot of biking now. There's always something you can do, so um, that would be kind of my answer to it. So, you know, maybe if uh, a full-time job is too much, you figure out a way to work around that at work and, and feel that you're valuable to, to yourself and to the community. It's uh, definitely a good message to send. Um, all right, so we're running a little thin on time here. Um, so I want to give you a chance to talk a little about your uh, your transplant experience. What was that like? Well, that was kind of uh, that was kind of crazy, but you know, I think uh, maybe I'm a little nutty sometimes. I don't realize the kind of the severity of things. Um, I think uh, you know, to me, it was almost like going in for a root canal. Uh, and I mean that until I actually got into the operating room. And I think part of it was working at the foundation and doing the volunteer work. You know, I do a lot of work with people with transplant grants. So you get so used to talking to people about a transplant, but if you've never experienced it, it's like it all becomes routine. And I ended up having six, five dry runs, which means you get a call, you go to the hospital, and then they find out that the lungs are not good. So. I got to be a pro at going and doing that, and it got to be to the point where it was annoying. But don't get me wrong, I was pretty sick. My lung function was like at 20%, 19%. But when you have a slow decline of your lung function over years, you get used to living that way. So it's not like a harsh, like, oh, my God, I can't breathe. Like today, my lung function after transplant is like 106 my FEVs, but if you were today to take that F my FEVs from 106 to 19, like just turn on a switch, I would feel like I'm suffocating. Mm -hmm. Time, so with the transplant, it just happened over time, like it went on, and, and I didn't get it, and then when I finally did get the call, the final call, um, I remember going to the hospital with my family. <clears throat> And they said, okay, you got to put on the gown and all this stuff. And I said, I'm not putting on the gown this time. Every time I do that, it's, it's not going to work out anyway, and I go home. <clears throat> they said, oh, no, no, I think you need to put it on this time. I think this time it's going to work. It's going to happen. So I'm like, okay. So I'm there with my family. My mother is yelling at me that, you know, behave myself and be nice to these people. Here I am, 50, whatever I was at the time. 56, and she's telling me to behave and you know, talk nice to the doctors and nurses. So, um, but I said that, I said that to the nurse. Now, if, if this is a this happens, you're not going to just come rolling up with the gurney and say, "Okay, we're going." Somebody's going to tell me, right? To give me a warning. Oh yes, yes. I said no because they did that once before, and I was kind of freaked out. And then they said they took the gurney away because it didn't happen. So they said, "Oh no, no, we'll tell you." All of a sudden, like at 3 in the morning, this gurney shows up outside my door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my family, like, can't sleep. And I'm like, that's not for me. Take that away, you know. 
And then the nurse comes in and says, oh, no, 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 it is for you. I said, they didn't tell me they were coming. She goes, well, no, they want you downstairs. So they actually uh, they took me downstairs, and I ended up uh, waiting downstairs. And at first, first I was with my family, and they gave me a uh, – you waited there for a while, then they gave me a, a pill. So I said, oh, does this mean I'm getting the – the transplant, they said, no, no, but we're going to give you your first anti-rejection drug, the pill. So they, I said, okay. They give me the pill, and then like 45 minutes later, must have been like almost 4 o'clock or 4.30, I don't even remember, they come back in. They said, oh, congratulations, we're going to take you in now. And I'm like, what do you mean? They said, well, you, you, the lungs, everything's good. The lungs are here. We're going in. You're going to get your transplant. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. i got to go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, and I come back, and my mother and brother and a friend of mine, they're all sitting there, like, freaking out, like, what are you doing? They, they're calling you. I said, just relax. And then I started texting people. I send, like, a group text, like, on Facebook, like, oh, I'm going in. It's the real deal now. And I'm telling my family, okay, you guys go inside, wait over there. I'll, I'll be back, you know. And, like, I'm directing them what to do. And they're like, okay, well, we love you. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Everything's good. And then I remember going into the operating room, and it was like I freaked out. It was like there was like 15 people in there, and it was like, you know, I think I wanted to have control of the situation. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? Oh, Mr. Canadola, they put me on the, the table, and they're strapping me down. And I'm like, wait a minute, where's the doctor? Where's, where's the doctor? Sorry, where's the surgeon? Oh, he's coming. He'll be right there. And already they're like putting the IV, and I was like, boom, I was out. The only thing I remember then is waking up like, I think two days later because they put me in a medically induced coma because I kept trying to rip out the tubing and everything. But um, it was uh, it was it was an experience. Uh, you know, I hopefully we'll never have to go through that again. But um, but you know, it wasn't like painful. You're really drugged up and you're delirious and. Uh, I have some crazy stories on that, which we'll save for another time. But you're so you're so out of it and drugged up. Um, but I went home, I think, in 11 days, and um, you know, I remember my surgeon, you know, sending me an email saying, you know, listen, don't worry, just you can do whatever you want, just to get out there and and live and do stuff. But it's a big adjustment after transplant. But I started walking. Uh, right away and kind of setting goals for myself. And then I remember after being home a week, he emails me again, the surgeon says, oh, I'm going to be doing Boomer's uh, Run to Breathe. I was hoping that you'll be joining me. And I thought, this guy's crazy. He's nuts. Anyway, I sat there for a minute at home, and I still had staples in my chest. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I can walk it. I can't run it. But that's the worst thing, because like once I said I was going to do it, I got obsessed with it. So I just started running and stuff. But, um, but it was probably the best thing for me, just to jump back into life. That's a that's quite the story. Um, okay, so before we're out of time here, uh, I want to try something a little new. Um, we're going to ask you a trivia question to see if you're really a CF expert. Uh oh. Uh, no, I get stressed. Really... I don't like testing. Well, well, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna suck it up, and we're gonna we're gonna get through this together. Uh, because I really want to see if you're a CF expert that you that you claim to be. Uh, then we're gonna try a little word association, and then uh, we'll call it a wrap. So uh, first, here we go. Um, 
When was Pulmozyme the popular nebulized drug first developed? Pulmozyme. Um, actually, let me think a minute because uh, I actually have been using that from the, the onset. Um, it was 1990, let me think, and I think it was 93, or ni is it 92? 93, 93 is good. Good job. Yeah. So much for knowledge and testing. Okay, so now a little word association, uh, sort of like family feud. I'll say a something or a question, and then, you know, the first thing that pops to mind or, or an answer. <clears throat> so here yeah, we go. Uh, the longest treatment that you had to do. The, what? the longest treatment. Oh God, it was an IV drug, um, and I forget the name of it. But I remember the IV one bag took over four hours, and I had to go in the hospital to test. And I remember when I did it, they told me now don't speed up this drug because it's not good. And I thought, oh the heck with them, I'm going to speed it up. I turned up the little nozzle. So the drug was going in faster because she said, oh, it takes about four and a half hours. I said, there's no way I'm sitting here for four and a half hours. I turned up the drug within 45 minutes. I was itching. I was red as a strawberry. The nurse came in, and she says, you turned it up. And I said, no, I didn't. I said, I'm having a bad reaction to the drug. She goes, yes, you turned it up. So I got caught. But that was the worst experience. So what comes to mind when you what say that drug? It was awful. When I say PFT test. Uh, low hard. <laughs> and then when I say pick one. They used to say blow hard, blow hard, keep blowing. And I remember I told them, I said, you blow hard. Let's see what you can do with it. <laughs> <laughs> what was the next one? Jeez. All right, so the next one is uh, pick one. Oh, God. Pick line. Hospital. And then uh, the most annoying treatment. Mm. Best. <laughs> and then the easiest treatment. Flutter. <laughs> so true. That is so true. <laughs> it's almost like cheating. All right, well... That's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you, Jerry, for joining us. And uh, thank you for listening to our listeners out there, listening to the uh, very first Own It podcast with uh, Gunnar Esiason. All right, Gunnar, thank you. Got questions for Gunnar? Send them to us. If you're on Facebook, you can send them to us at facebook.com slash Foundation. You can Twitter us at twitter.com slash cysticfibrosis or twitter.com slash g17esiason. And you can also send an email to Gunner at gunnersblog at esiason.org. When Gunner answers your question, we'll credit you. So get busy and send them in.